Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, depending on where you're dialing in from. This is Jay Minsmeyer hosting another edition of Value Investors Edge Live. Today, we have the CEO and CFO of Ardmore Shipping, Tony Gurney and Paul Tivnan on the line with us. Ardmore Shipping is a product tanker firm specializing in MR product tankers with a few chemical tankers. They reported earnings this morning, uh, 5 May 2020. Uh, for disclosures, before we begin, I do have a long position in Ardmore Shipping. Uh, nothing you hear on the call today constitutes official company guidance or investment recommendations of any form. With that said, uh, Paul and Tony, welcome. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, so you know, we had your official earnings call about three hours ago. Uh, the, you know, reported your results, and you know, the tankers have been very popular trade in the markets the last uh, last month or six weeks or so. Ardmore wasn't quite uh, as high flyer as some of the other names, but it did see a little bit of an increase. Of course, we also saw strong rates uh, coming across, you know, from the brokers and such for LRs especially, and then MRs the last ten days. Uh, stocks are down pretty heavily today. Looks like oil's up and. Basically, all the tankers are down. Ardmore is down a little bit more than usual. Uh, but let's start things out, just broad, big picture, and then we'll build into the specifics. So big picture, what what's going on in the MR market? Why are those rates jumping? And, and, and what's really the underlying story there? Uh, well, Jay, um, I'll, I'll, I'll start with that and uh, try to try to work Paul into some of the answers as well. Uh, yeah, so where to begin? I mean, this is really, uh, you know, the, the kind of playthrough of the, you know, massive demand destruction that we saw in connection with the coronavirus exacerbated by, um, by the, uh, OPEC, uh, Russia oil price war. Um, <clears throat> we believe that there's been an unprecedented move, um, of, um, oil into floating storage and oil on the water now representing 10% plus of the of the world tanker fleet um, when you factor Aframax and up on um, the crude side and MRs and up on the uh, product side. Um, and, you know, granted rates have come off. Uh, I'm looking at the most recent report, uh, but it does show rates, for example, stabilizing in the Far East. Um, and we're talking about MR rates in the $35,000 to $40,000 range, which is uh, not too shabby. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen just eye-popping rates. I think one of the benchmark quotes was, you know, in the 70s. And I know you mentioned on your earnings call that you had one fixture. I believe it was uh, 72,000 for 55-day round voyage, if I saw that correct. But I know also yeah. you mentioned on the earnings call, uh, you know, that some of the broker estimates are too high. I think you used the term uh, pixie dust. Uh, so if you don't mind to just explain to the folks on the call today, kind of what you meant by that and and how how do we read these broker fixtures to make sure that we don't have unrealistic expectations? Yeah, I think I think when you hear broker reports, uh, you need to <clears throat> temper that a little bit. Um, part of it is just structural, right? So, or at least the construction of the rate. So, when you talk about the Atlantic triangulation of TC214, that's basically gasoline from Rotterdam to New York, and then you ballast down to Houston, and you take diesel back to Europe, Amsterdam, or Rotterdam. Well, you know the way that rate is quoted, it's assuming that you have the ship, you know, fixable in Rotterdam and Houston at the same time. And of course, we know that's not possible. So, you know, that, that is a temporarily sequential voyage, right? So when you read, for example, uh, you know, <clears throat> TC214 at 50,000 a day, it's kind of an artificial construct. Um, I think the industry is prone to cherry picking specific, um, you know, kind of high points and then referring to those as where the market's at. Um, the reality is that, uh, uh, you know, let's say, for example, if we if we look if we look across the world today, um, you know, we did this this morning to kind of get ready for the call. 
we asked our chartering team to assess where our rates, and they really ranged anywhere from, you know, 25,000 a day up to about 65,000 a day, depending on the market, with a global average of about 35 or 40,000. What you might find is that brokers will be focusing more and kind of talking about the 65,000 a day rates and, you know, particular region rather than generalizing and perhaps contextualizing rates over, you know, over a period of days. So that's what we mean by that. So, I mean, you know, one of our favorite reports is the Howe Robinson report. You know, as of yesterday, they were reporting MRs globally at 50,000 a day, whereas our guys are saying 35 to 40,000. I think under normal times, the the rates that brokers quote are not far off, but when it gets this volatile, uh, you know, the estimates can be just out of line with reality. Right, absolutely. That makes sense. We, we see the same thing a lot of times in VLCCs, right? There'll be a spike of 200,000 or 220, but it's only one or two or three ships, right? And then there's right. there's 15 exactly. ships fixed the next day at, at a great rate, but it's maybe like 140, right? So it doesn't come through right. as high. Um, you know, we have an yeah. analytics platform and we track the weekly Clarkson's rates and we look at CR Weber and some of the other reports as well. And we had, you know, Q1 around 21, maybe a little lower. So you, your results came in mostly in line. Uh, Q2, we had you about 28, 29. Um, but I noticed on the call, you mentioned the voyages in progress were about 28,000. Did I hear that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what we did was we quoted, uh, we normally don't do this. We usually just talk about, <clears throat> about uh, the quarter to date. But we decided to include uh, a number that we track, which is, you know, those those voyages which are still kind of underway. They're not yet completed. And it's a more current but actual, you know, kind of fact, you know, reality-based assessment of where the market is. It's still historical, though. So, you know, there are voyages um, in, in voyages in progress today that could have started a month ago, right? So, you know, typically it's kind of like the last three weeks of voyages. Yeah, that that makes sense. I, I think you mentioned, uh, you know, of course you just closed twenty four thousand at fifty five percent, and then I think on the mm-hmm. on the live earnings call, uh, you know, got to make sure I get it out there so it's public information, right? Yeah. But I think you mentioned yeah, sure. you had an additional fixture that was above fifty, so you've had two super high fixtures. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think we've had three up at really at those levels. So. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. If you don't mind reiterating a little bit, basically similar to what you said on the conference call, but about your chemical side of the business, uh, those rates came mm-hmm. in significantly lower and it doesn't seem like they're getting the same sort of uptrend. Um, is that correct? And if so, how should we model those those chemical tankers as opposed to the regular products? Yeah. Within that chemical fleet, it's only six ships granted, but <clears throat> we've got two 37,000 tonners, which typically trade pretty much in line with the MRs. Now, having said that, they tend to do longer voyages in veg oils and things like that, so they won't capture the upside immediately, or perhaps as as, as quickly as the as the MR fleet does. But generally speaking, those two ships perform pretty much in line with the MRs. The other four are twenty five thousand tonners, and they're a substantially lower amount of capital invested, and then the results that they achieve are correspondingly lower as well, right? So. You know, you could, you know, I mean, depending on, you know, the market value differential between those and the MRs of similar age is probably 20, 25%. So, for example, when we talk about 16,000 a day, you could, you could kind of up that by 33% to come up with an MR equivalent number. Um, that's something we usually don't spend a lot of time dwelling on to make sure people understand, but, but that is, that is a fact, right? So, um, for Q1, uh, those ships came in, I think, around 19,000 a day. We were very happy with that. At the moment, uh, Q2 to date, they're at a lower level. Um, part of it is just that it's a very small data set. 
uh, of only four ships. Um, and, you know, they, they tend to engage in surprisingly long voyages. Uh, so you do see a pattern of front haul, back haul um, in those that can actually, you know, actually, you know, uh, um, you know, kind of show up in our quarterly earnings um, with that kind of lumpiness or, or differential. So, you know, overall, we're happy with the results. I think on a capital adjusted basis, they perform pretty much in line with the MRs. Um, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I think actually on the Q1 results, the, the chemical came in a little bit higher. It was a few hundred bucks higher. So right. I was actually impressed yeah. and, and a little surprised by by that. Um, of course, the MR yeah. is slightly, slightly weaker. Um, let's talk a little yeah. bit about capital allocation. So we, we have a lot of investors on the line. Looks like we got a little over 50 now. Um, a lot mm -hmm. of interest in kind of the dividend policy and how that changed. Uh, can you talk about the evolution of that? Because I think it used to be 60% of profits, right? Which today would have implied, what, 12 cent mm -hmm. dividend. Uh, but now we're, now we're keeping cash for... Uh, deleveraging. Can we talk through that a little bit? Yeah, happy to. And 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 maybe maybe just kind of pull back a little bit and talk about you know a bit of philosophy around around dividend policy. Um, you know, when we started off as a public company, we had a quarterly dividend policy of ten cents. Uh, at one point, we decided to shift to the variable or you know the um, the, the variable payout um, basis of sixty percent. And at that point, we tripled the dividend. Um, the stock price did nothing. <laughs> Um, so, you know, but we did it because we felt it was a, a, a more sustainable policy. We went through a period of three years of very, very tough uh, market conditions, accumulated a lot of losses. Um, and, you know, so coming out of that really, you know, mid-year last year, we began to think, you know, what, what's the right policy? I mean, we've, um, you know, to kind of go forward with. And, you know, it was a fairly extensive discussion, um, you know, at, at, on an ongoing basis um, at the board level. Uh, we decided to um, evolve our, our dividend policy into a broader capital allocation policy um, where we would, you know, the, the approach we're taking now is to, um, on every quarterly earnings call, uh, we will ar articulate what our priorities are and how over the prior quarter we've allocated capital. Um, given the tough market that we've been through and given the outlook uh, at the time, which was really something that we decided in kind of February, um, we decided to uh, put the priority on on uh, reducing debt uh, delevering. Um, and part of that was in reaction to the tough few years we had, but also part of it is in reaction to observing that you know, most companies are leveraged to a point, including us, where um, you know, there's certainly no great financial risk in the profile, but it really does make it very difficult for you to be countercyclical and opportunistic in a weak market. Uh, and that's really when, you know, you know, as the old adage goes, you make money when you buy. Um, and the ability to, you know, to have the financial resources, you know, to step into a weak market and buy ships at significantly discounted rates, you know, we thought, um, uh, we, and we do think, uh, will be a real differentiator and will allow us to build real value in the company over time. Yeah, I think it, I think it makes sense, Tony, to focus on the balance sheet in this market. I, I think people can get behind that and understand, you know, that impetus. But I think a concern that I hear all the time, and, and this is across, we have 600 plus members on Value Investors Edge, 13,000 followers mm -hmm. on Seeking Alpha. You know, it's a pretty wide audience of folks that we're working with, anything from retail investors all the way up family offices, hedge funds, um, mutual fund managers, and so on. And the biggest concern we always hear is that these ship owners are just going to go out, 
They're going to buy new ships. They're going to do new builds. They're going to shoot themselves in the foot. Or whenever they build up all this cash from good quarters, they're just going to spend it on more ships as opposed to giving mm -hmm. the money back to the shareholders and to the investors. So is there any sort of, I guess, words of, because I've known both of you for you know, four or five years now, and I know you've been good stewards of equity, right? I know that, yeah. but not everyone trusts yeah. you for, you know, for different reasons. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Can you walk us through kind of maybe like your, your flow chart or your decision matrix at what yeah. point you're sitting with 200 million on the balance. I'm saying theoretically, you have 200 million in cash, yeah. say in a year from now, yeah. and how do you decide yeah. between repurchases, dividends and buying ships? Okay. Let's, first of all, let's address the first question. Um, should we be trusted? I think trust is a function of governance and alignment of interests. Um, we've got a fully independent board. Uh, we have no transactions with affiliates. Uh, we're highly incentivized to build value uh, for, um, you know, for our shareholders. I'm personally through stock options and outright ownership. Probably I own a little more than 5% of the, at least the upside um, in the stock. Right. So, <clears throat> And we also have a structure that kind of protects us in the event of dividends. So it's not like that we're not interested in dividends, but we're thinking about, okay, how do we do the right thing here, building value for shareholders? Um, we don't believe that, you know, paying out a substantial amount of, of earnings in a highly cyclical business is necessarily the best way to do it. If the only alternative is to make incredibly bad capital allocation decisions um, and, uh, siphon off money, et cetera, I understand. <laughs> and if I were a shareholder in a company like that, I would probably be fairly insistent as well. But I think we're asking investors to kind of look at who Ardmore is, look at our track record, look at how we're incentivized, um, look at what we believe in and, and trust us a little bit that, um, you know, that we're, we're doing the right thing for shareholders. Um, <clears throat> I think it's also interesting to look at us uh, compared to other companies over time in terms of of the actual, you know, stock price path. Um, and, you know, I don't want to go into much detail on that, but it's, it's an interesting um, analysis you can do across, across companies to figure out, you know, who's, who's uh, built value or destroyed value over time. Yeah. Or, uh, so you, so this, less. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, yeah, we've just been through a tough period, but uh, look, you can see that, you know, the, the, you know, the earnings leverage and the earnings power, of this kind of business in the right conditions is quite extraordinary. I think is what we're seeing right now. Uh, so the question was, well, let's say if we end up building 200 million of cash in the next year, uh, we will, um, you know, I think it very much depends on where we see the outlook at that point in time. And I hand on heart, if we felt at that point in time that we had meet, meet our, met our, our leverage targets, uh, leverage and liquidity targets, and, you know, felt that on a cycle, you know, on a, on a kind of a cycle analysis basis, we felt we didn't really have a good use of, uh, of capital, we would pay it out. I would either buy back shares if they were cheap or we'd pay it out in dividends. Yeah, certainly, certainly makes sense, Tony. In terms of repurchases, because I know I, I mentioned, you know, on a call this morning, I, I think Randy Givens, good friend of mine at Jefferies, had, had mentioned your NAV was mm -hmm. 10 or 11. And I, I think you mentioned, well, maybe yeah. that's a little bit forward. Yeah. Um, I, I've calculated your NAV and everyone has different estimates. That's fine. But look, I've calculated your Q120 NAV. Uh, so 31 March financials, about 750. And, you know, you go mm -hmm. Q2 estimated and there's still some tail left. So we don't know, but mm -hmm. 859 bucks, somewhere in there, right? Um, you know, maybe, maybe 50 cents dollar higher, maybe 50 cents dollar lower, but somewhere 
more in there, right? The stock's six bucks. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to repurchase? And you mentioned kind of, well, you know, we're long-term focused, not just short-term. And, and I get that. I respect that. Um, right. But at what point does it get too absurd? I know, I know you mentioned 50 cents is kind of, you know, hyperbole, <laughs> right? But at what point does it, it's like, dude, we got yeah. 100, 150, 200 million in cash and we're at 50% yeah. and a half. Like at what point is it just too much? Right. Okay. So in principle, when we got somewhere between where we are today and 50 cents, I think we'd be very compelled, right? However, there's a big problem, and, and that's what I'm trying to point out on the call as well. The Depending on your, your share volume, and ours has not been huge, it's higher now, obviously, um, you know, the restrictions, um, you know, the SEC places on share buyback programs is, is quite significant. Uh, we've actually done share repurchasing two or three times in the past, uh, and it was something that investors were pressing us for at the time. The amounts we were able to bring in were negligible, and nobody ever talked about it again. So I, I think that um, if you're going to do buybacks, you really have to find a way to do it at a time when it's truly strategic and you're really building you know, meaningful value and not just doing little bits and hoping that you're going to send a signal to the market and people will like your stock and buy it. Right. You got to go, you got to go big and go strategic. Otherwise you're just sending a, a right. bait signal. Right. Um, that's, have that's you ever right. thought about, have you ever thought about like, like a tender offering, like doing a, you know, 2 million shares at 650 or something like that? Um, you know, <clears throat> that certainly wouldn't be, you know, that, that wouldn't move the needle. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Anyway. So, you know, I, I think you, I think you'd have to talk. You'd have to be considering much a much larger volume and buyback, and at a lower price, for it to have a meaningful impact. Yeah, very very interesting way of of looking at things there, because you know obviously if the nav is you know eight or nine bucks and you're buying at six, you're you're basically just creating value for remaining shareholders, uh, right? But there's a trade off because you're you're lowering your liquidity and and you're increasing your leverage, right? So it it is a trade off yeah. for sure. Honestly, if we had nothing else to do with cash, and you know I hope we get to that point. <laughs> That would be a nice place to be. Uh, and we were thinking about paying special dividends or buying back. Obviously, if the stock was, you know, trading a couple bucks below now, we would we would buy stock back. But I don't think, honestly, we'd be able to bring in that much. And that's my point. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Just, to see because, just because of the, the you know, the, the sort of the restrictions around these kind of programs. Right, right. Well, I guess the question, that final question to kind of tie it together is, is maybe what folks are concerned about is that instead of trying to buy stock, you know, whether or not it's mm -hmm. successful, trying to buy stock mm -hmm. at 60%, 70% NAV versus spending mm -hmm. that same cash on secondhand vessels, right? Because I understand you're probably not going to do new builds at this point, but maybe right. if the prices drop, you might do yep. secondhand acquisitions. But look, if, if yep. the prices drop for secondhand acquisitions, your stock's probably going to drop mm -hmm. as well. So at what point do you say, I'm going to spend 100% NAV buying new ships or, or secondhand ships versus spending 60% NAV and buying stock? Is there, does that go into the consideration? Uh, yes. Um, this is good. <laughs> I like the discussion. 60% of NAV for us would be $4.50, probably, maybe, something like that. Um, so, you know, I think, I think the opportunity would have to be really actionable, right? In other words, you could, you could get it in in sufficient volume. So, for example, even if you just buy one ship, you're going to put $10, $50 million to work in equity, right? Th that's multiples of what we've ever been able to do in a stock buyback program in one quarter, right? 
um, if you if you if you uh, do a tender offer, it takes many many weeks. You're signaling to the market. I don't think anybody's going to really be interested in surrendering stock uh, at that kind of a discount. Um, so you're going to have to pay a substantial premium. So it's it's all it's all quite problematic. Um, but you know, like I said, if we uh, you know the first time I came across this question was in probably 1996, right? <laughs> Um, I was at TK. We had just completed the IPO. Uh, the market was, you know, moved up over the over the subsequent year or two, and was in New York meeting with investors, and they said, you know, are you going to basically buy ships or buy shares? Right. So, you know, it's it's a question that's been around a long time. Um, what I, I want to just try to emphasize and get across and convey here is that at any given point in time, we're looking for the right thing to do with regard to financial risk and in terms of capital allocation to maximize value. You'll notice that we're not building an empire, right? We could have many, many more ships than 25. Why do we have 25? Well, because that's actually resulted in a pretty strong, a pretty high stock price relative to, you know, where other <clears throat> others have gone over time, right? We think uh, if we had a larger fleet, we could perform better <clears throat> in terms of scale efficiencies and maybe a little bit more market power. But we're actually doing fine right now with with even just 25 ships. So we're not empire builders; we're value builders. Yeah, I think if investors believe and understand the alignment and understand that your entire goal is to drive the highest future price per share, uh, then there'll be less concerns, right? We've just seen so many things in the sector. That's, and, and that's really my only incentive. That's 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 how I'm incentivized. Yeah, and and of course I understand that because you know I know Ardmore inside and out, but there you know there's a lot of folks that just paint shipping or tankers even with one broad brush, and there's a lot of companies out there, some of your peers that have related party transactions and sort of conflicts of interest, and you know we've seen it so often. And look, investors for the most part, you know, and maybe that's part of the problem in the industry, but look, 90% of investors are not here to be tanker owners, right? Like they don't care about you know, vessels in the water. They just want to make money, right? That's all we want to do. So we're just, we're, we're saying like, oh man, are they just keep buying more boats and kicking the can down the road? And we understand you're, you're not trying to do that, but it, I know sometimes right. it comes off that way. Um, a question for maybe Paul on the line here, a question for him. Um, I got a couple of investors asking, you know, what is kind of the normal uh, return on assets slash return on equity folks can expect uh, from the kind of MR product tanker business? And how does that normal sort of return on assets, return on equity compare to a market like we have right now? Uh, hey, Jay. Uh, hey, everyone. Uh, great question. I guess, you know, I think the way we look at it is return on invested capital. Uh, and I think, um, you know, shipping, you know, we're not, not ashamed to admit it, but shipping is not pretend to be a very high return on capital. Most companies, depending on their leverage, et cetera, their WAC would be about 7%. So in a good kind of mid-cycle rate, you might earn kind of close to that, maybe kind of 5 5 6%, et cetera. But if you're, if you're looking at now rates of $30,000 a day, you're talking of, it's ROICs of 20 to 25%. So it's, uh, you know, these are, these are massive steps up um, from, from mid-cycle rates. So, um, so yeah, and that would be right across across all the kind of MR space at 30 grand a day. Yes, it's a significantly outsized return compared to the average, but the average is admittedly not very good, right? So just, if you don't mind walking through, and either one of y'all, uh, walk us through kind of what the normal MR cycle, what a normal average year looks like and what a normal average May or June looks like. Uh, well, I'll give, I'll give just some, um, some my perspective on it, and then maybe Tony can chime in. I think, look, if you, you know, go back to kind of really big picture, 
Um, shipping cycles tend to run, and maybe the last couple of cycles have been slightly different, but shipping cycles going back, you know, 10, 20, 50 years tend to run in, in, in seven-year cycles, peak to peak. And within that seven years, you can expect maybe of that, you'd probably make money, really good money, two to three years, and then you'll kind of break even to kind of loss making for the other, kind of call it, call it three to four. So that, that's how the cycle typically looks. You tend to have quite a few barren periods. And then you've got a few outsized years, which really make up the difference. And then the mid-cycle earnings for MRs, we've, we've worked out that, you know, for a conventional MR, is probably around fifteen to $16,000 a day. Uh, and that's how we measure whether it's a ship acquisition or, or or any form of investment. Look at it right through. Like that. So, you know, going back to Tony's point, we, we try and allocate capital with that in mind. And if you're making lots of money, you should hustle the cash and you can buy it at a lower point in the cycle. So I would say... Um, Mid-cycle rates, that's where we would have them kind of peg that kind of fifteen to sixteen thousand dollars a day. Then during the year, um, uh, I let Tony comment on this. We, we tend to joke about seasonality. I think the winter is definitely stronger. Uh, the summer, uh, depending on kind of refinery turnarounds and the end of the first quarter and then early in October, uh, they tend to be kind of softer periods. But that can only be for a couple of weeks. It also depends on how the market looks. Uh, so, for example, ordinarily you would have expected summer to be slightly softer, but in the third quarter of 2015, we had our our, our, well, our second best quarter ever. This is this is one of our better ones just gone. Uh, but uh, in that market, the, the rates just went up and up and up right throughout August. So it, it does vary depending on, on what's going on, but you would expect ordinarily that the winter market would be stronger. And then you've got uh, as leading into the summer market. It, it tends to be improving as well, but you tend to have quite softer periods around refinery maintenance, particularly in the U.S. when it's uh, uh, kind of towards the, the end of the, the winter grade and, and in, in February, March, and then also in October. So I don't know if Tony's got any, any additional color on that. No, I think that's a good that's a good uh, description of the of you know kind of the seasonality in the business. I just want to maybe reinforce one point that Paul was making, and it maybe gives a sense of it how we think. Thing, how we think things through that perhaps is different from other companies. And that's this whole idea that we have of mid-cycle rates. And we really judge our investments against mid-cycle rates and the company's performance and the contributions of different parts of the company based on, on mid-cycle rates. And, you know, <clears throat> I, I, uh, to be honest, you know, earn, fixing a ship at 72000 a day, uh, you know, um, you know, you know, you know, being in a market of thirty-five thousand a day, it's not nearly as exciting for us as you would think it would be because we're thinking about all the tough years that we had as well, and you know what we're going through right now is a necessary offset <laughs> against all the tough times. And what we really get excited about is, you know, how can we, what kind of returns on capital are we able to generate um, at a mid-cycle rate, which you know factors in these strong markets as well as weak markets, and that's. That's really what drives our decision making. Yeah, it certainly makes sense. And you know, I guess the takeaway from that is, look, fifteen to sixteen thousand is the average MR rate. So when you guys put up numbers like, you know, basically twenty thousand for Q1, uh, around twenty, a little bit less for Q4. A Q2 guidance is fifty-five percent at twenty-four. Uh, I mean, we're talking significant differences. And of course, with operating leverage, every dollar above your break-even is basically free cash flow. Right, so that's a Correct. it's a significant. Right. It's not just fifty percent higher rates. I mean, it might be ten times higher, or five, at least five times higher free cash flow. Right, we're talking significant uh, upside leverage to that. Um, question for you right. on that: um, it, it must be kind of frustrating because, look, MR asset prices are not 
they're basically mid-cycle-ish, right? Maybe a little higher, maybe a little lower, depending on mm-hmm. the age class. Um, and yeah. so NAV is basically based on a mid-cycle average, right? So your NAV of mm-hmm. 750, or call it nine bucks in the summer, whatever it might be, 750 to nine, that's based on mid-cycle yeah. rates. Well, right now yeah. we have, you know, if, if it's not gangbusters, it's pretty close to gangbusters rates. And we're mm-hmm. trading at like six bucks, look, because everyone is focused mm-hmm. on the, what's going to happen in six months, right? But then if we get to yeah. six months and, and things are things are slumped, then, you know, it's not like investors are going to focus on the great times ahead. So how right. do you communicate that message, I guess, as a shipping company, or how do you rationalize your value across the cycle? Like, how should investors be looking at you? Mm-hmm. Uh, we understand that there's skepticism, <laughs> and uh, but we also understand that it's not necessarily because of Ardmore. It's more of an industry reputation. Uh, I think that you know that uh, NAV that we talked about earlier, whether it's 750 or 850 or whatever, you know, we think that that NAV over a period of time, um, you know, could be a few bucks higher simply because of retained earnings. And I think people just forget about the fact that you know NAV is a static measure; it's just a, a point in time. But uh, it does factor in um, cumulative operating, you know, gains and losses or, you know, er- earnings and losses. Right. So, you know, it's, you know, how do you build NAV? You buy low, sell high and operate really, really well. Right. And and that that's that's how you build value you know, over time in this business. Um, <clears throat> we really only care about the price of the ship or the value of a ship um, on two dates, the day we buy it and the day we sell it. Granted, we can get frustrated and think, oh, you know, how come the market doesn't really recognize how great this great the situation is and, you know, ships ought to be worth more or, you know, she gives a higher multiple on earnings or whatever. You know, fine. I mean, our job is to just focus on building value um, <clears throat> in the way that I just, you know, just described. So, look, days like today are frustrating for us, but again, it doesn't really get in the way of, of our, you know, focus and, and our job as a management team, which is just building value. And whether you want to measure that as a multiple of cash flow or NAV at a point in time, you know, you know, I think both, both are valid. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting to see. I mean, I've covered the sector for 10 years now and, and five years on Value Investor's Edge. And it seems like, you know, there's so much always emotion in the market. And, you know, folks are just really burned out uh, with a lot of shipping investments. So it's hard for, mm-hmm. you know, shipping companies can barely even get decent credit in the good times. Right, let alone in, right. in sort of the challenging times. So, you know, hopefully as we see more and more companies adopting better corporate governance and, and adopting more long-term focused investments such as yourselves, uh, we'll see some improvements, right? But uh, maybe best not to hold our breath underwater on uh, on that one. Um, look, the biggest statistic, I think that that's sort of exciting and relevant, right, for product tankers is this huge buildup in floating storage and, 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 and mm-hmm. unprecedented in products, right? Uh, I spoke with Kepler Oil yesterday and they have a chart, oil on water, and they also have a chart, products on water. And, you know, brokers I'd, I'd spoken with expected 50 to 60 million barrels of product on water. When I spoke with Kepler yesterday, uh, their latest numbers for build was over 90 million barrels of product on water. Um, I know you had a slide yeah. in your earnings presentation. Do you have any sort of other indications that you look for? What sort of metrics you're following? What sort of stuff you're seeing in the markets for product on water? Uh, the Kepler analysis is really good. We, we've <clears throat> we've been tracking them and listening to their um <clears throat> to their presentation, you know their their uh, presentations, which are on YouTube, um, and and I think they've they've got a very good analytical analytic tool to measure it, and and I think you just you know taking that as a baseline and then look at what is going to happen throughout the month of May, in in our view, um, <clears throat> you can only conclude that looks like a lot more is going to either 
show up in ships waiting for discharge. Um, you know, so for LR2s, they might be contractual storage. Uh, in the MR space, it's more like, you know, waiting for discharge. As I mentioned, you know, we had a ship sitting for 40 days waiting to discharge. Um, <clears throat> that's, that's floating storage as well. That ship is out of the market. Um, it's actually earning demerge. Um, so it's, you know, it's doing fine. Um, so, <clears throat> so I think the, um, you know, the, the slowing down of vessels, um, resulting in more quote unquote, you know, product on the water, um, <clears throat> and waiting to discharge is only going to continue growing and, um, you know, creating more demand if you want to look at it that way or, you know, taking supply out of the market. Yeah, very, very interesting. There's some recent commentary, you know, talking about uh, land storage being plentifully available and, you know, the oil and product builds being less than expected. Uh, but it's, it seems odd, you know, that we're seeing the huge build in floating storage, if that's the case. Mm. Um, what have you heard from your from your customers? Is there plenty of, of terminal storage available for products or do you think it's mostly going to have to go floating going mm. forward? I, I think the signals we get on that are mostly just what we can kind of pick up you know, off the internet and kind of talking to brokers and, and things. And it just seems like it's very tight. I think there's theoretical storage and there's functional uh, storage. <clears throat> um, it seems like everything that, that uh, could storage that could, could be, could be uh, leased is, has, has gone. Uh, it's not all full, <clears throat> but um, you know, inevitably it's not all in the right places and it's not all going to be made available. And one, I think it was Kepler that made the point. Uh, it was very interesting that, you know, half of all the excess or, you know, the remaining storage capacity is in just two countries, in the U.S. and in China. And, of course, this is a very, very, you know, uh, broadly spread, you know, global business, right? So it just seems, you know, then, you know, Reistad from Norway has got their own view. Um, Kepler seems to be a little bit more um, almost cautious about, you know, declaring when they think functional storage will fill up. Reistad is a little more overt about it. Uh Either way, it just seems like by the end of May, uh, it's going to look very different from what it does today. And the other, the other thing I'll mention is that, <clears throat> you know, I've experienced this in different situations before. Um, the reality is that that kind of a scenario is catastrophic for the oil industry, which is a huge business. And we don't wish ill on anybody, especially in these, you know, conditions. But you can imagine why people would have a bias toward, you know, a, a kind of a positive view on, um, you know, demand recovery and, you know, reduction in production, et cetera, because the consequences for them are just so severe. As a, as a result, I, I think they're probably, you know, putting too much of a, of a bias on it all working out okay. And we, we just we just don't quite see it that way. Yeah, regardless of how exactly it turns out, it's going to be a very interesting few weeks, if not few months, uh, to work through things. And, yeah. and we don't see MR rates at seventy thousand and LR ones at one ten and LR twos at one seventy if there's plenty of storage, right? I mean, if everything's working, all the gears are greased. We don't see those kind of rates, right? So those rates are, are yeah. screaming that something's not quite right uh, out there in the markets. Yeah. Um, so any any parting shots? I mean, obviously the market uh, is rough for all tankers today. It seems like you know oil's up, contango's down, tankers down is kind of the simple core. Um, Ardmore's down mm -hmm. a little heavier right on earnings, but um, anything, any yeah. parting shots you want to leave for investors on the call today or on the recording later? Well, I have one of the books on my desk right here is Benjamin Graham's The Intelligent Investor, and he talks about Mr. Market. And I guess Mr. Market's just depressed today. So, but he'll probably be happy tomorrow. <laughs> so I, I think you can, you know, we have the luxury of you know, being able to kind of focus on the physical business and, and taking a long-term view, you know, it must be frustrating if you're, you know, trying to, 
make make rational um, investment decisions in a business that's you know this volatile not only for underlying reasons but also for just sentiment and you know I think that uh, the the sell the not the sell off but the decline in rates on the big ships has been significant but it's still you know they're still at very elevated levels and it seems like the VLCC rates have come down to a level that can be supported you know given the contango. Uh, futures can tango with, you know, storage, et cetera. Um, you know, it feels right now like MR rates are stabilizing. Uh, that's that's the point we made today. Uh, it doesn't feel like they're in free fall. And um, when you're talking that way at rate levels of 35 to 40,000 a day, you just have to take a step back and reflect on what that really means financially for a company like Ardmore or any other product company. Uh, tanker companies, and it's it's quite significant. I mean, you were talking about returns on capital earlier. Clearly, this is not, you know, we're not going to be at, at these levels, you know, at a steady run rate for, you know, very long periods of time, but the return on invested capital is probably 35 or 40% at that level. Yes, it's very interesting. A voting machine, right, versus a weighing machine. And and the votes were coming in strong uh, 10 days ago. They were coming in yeah. weak on Friday. They were coming in great on Monday, and they're coming in bad today. So, you know, the voting right. is, is all over the place. Uh, it's like a banana republic yeah. out there. Um, but the weighing machine yeah. is, is getting better and better. So, Paul and Tony, thank you so much for joining us today and for taking time out of your schedules. You're welcome. This concludes another edition of Valley Investors Edge Live. Thank you for everyone for dialing in and joining us today. As a reminder, nothing you heard here today constitutes official company guidance or investment advice in any format. This was recorded at about 1400 Eastern time on May 5th, 2020. I am currently long a position in Ardmore Shipping. If you're listening to a recording at a later date, these positions may have changed. 